Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. I figured a year in podcast would be a good one to look back at the first year of Justin Trudeau's government of real change. So far, it's mostly been the rhetoric, not the policies that have changed, and some of the shine is finally wearing off. Whether approving pipelines, dragging out electoral reform, or privatizing airports and transit systems, the Liberals are showing themselves to be the good capitalist managers they've always been, not the anti-austerity crusaders of the last election campaign. Today, three guests, Derek O'Keefe, Clayton Thomas-Muller, and Luke Savage, take a look back at this first year of the Liberal government and look forward to how opposition to it can develop. First up, Derek O'Keefe. Derek is a journalist, author, and editor at Ricochet Media. He's a frequent commenter on Canadian politics and is based in Vancouver, BC. You know, it's it's been it's been over a year of the of the Trudeau government. Now we're starting to see what it's going to look like. You know, more policy rather than just promises. Um, and it seems like some of the sheen is finally wearing off. Is that is that the case? Basically, is the sheen wearing off? I think the sheen is is starting to wear off, but I think it should step back and put things in perspective. One year in, this is by any measure in recent Canadian history an extremely popular government, an extremely popular prime minister, and I think the sheen is coming off, but the bigger questions are who's going to capitalize on the, the growing uh, discontent, which is... Uh, the the interesting thing about the ways in which the sheen is starting to come off Trudeau is that you can see very clearly from the different issues where he's uh, his popularity is starting to take a dent that these things are only gonna <clears throat> the sheen is only gonna continue to come off in 2017 because they're all issues where <clears throat> the government's contradictions are clearly exposed um, and what seems to be happening is they realize that Trudeau's personal appeal is their biggest political asset, uh, and he's really, um, you know, he's he's defending their territory as much as as much as he can with that personal appeal. But the contradictions are just just too great. So that's very clear in the case of BC, where uh, Trudeau really made a personal pitch for the Kinder Morgan pipeline, which was very interesting. He didn't just send one of his his ministers out to take the fall, so to speak. Um, he wove his personal narrative of growing up with his grandfather on the West Coast, who happened to be a liberal politician himself. Um, you know, he sort of poured that whole part of his personal story connected to BC into his approval of the Kinder Morgan pipeline. So, so that tells me that this government is aware, for example, that that's an unpopular issue, but they think that Trudeau's personal appeal, um, basically they think he has enough political capital to burn, and I don't actually blame them for being confident. We can hope that they're overconfident on that particular issue and that this will blow back significantly against them. But if you look at the polls, if you look at the the media coverage, if you look at Google Images, you know, because this, this, this government takes very seriously yeah. the image of Justin Trudeau. They have his personal photographer as, as one of their most, most important staffers. The image is still very strong. Um, so there's a lot of sheen still to come off, I would say. All right. You can buy a. I was looking at the liberal website. And you can buy a liberal branded uh, selfie stick. On, oh my on there, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not Justin Trudeau branded, actually. 
um, wow. just party branded. Um, what you, you talked about a few of the contradictions sort of slowly coming to light and, and kind of extending into, into 2017. What, what are some of these? Just maybe, you know, list off a few that, that you think are especially uh, pertinent. Sure. Well, on electoral reform, in, unless the government does a bit of a 180 here over the break and realizes they have to do something on it, uh, it's clear they've just decided to, to more or less break that promise from the 2015 election. And in, in a very sort of weird, poorly scripted way, they sent out their their young minister, Miriam Monsef, to try to justify the um, what looks very clearly like like a broken promise. They said 2015 would be the last election under first past the post. They've stalled for six months, didn't do anything on this. Then they started uh, consultations across the country, which then their own minister kind of threw under the bus, saying that whole process didn't produce anything. They, they've got a very silly online survey out. Um, this is a government that is has competent people working for it when they want to move on something. It looks like they, they don't want to move on this. Uh, and so the contradiction there is that a, a certain number of people are going to be very upset because this is a, a big issue to them. I think the government is banking on enough people uh, not being aware of electoral reform or not caring enough about it to make it a, a ballot box, box issue at the next election. And Trudeau himself sort of said, um, look, now that we're in power, people don't care about electoral reform which uh, it indicates a certain arrogance on that issue. But I think that's an issue where they're just not going to meet their meet their promise. So that's a that's a contradiction. Um, the, the bigger one is just sort of their their overall it's sort of endless mantra that everything they do is for the middle class. Everything they do um, it is about uh, creating jobs and, and prosperity generally for Canadians. Occasionally they say working class, but basically they use the middle class. <clears throat> um, Right. I, 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 I saw recently it was, you know, the working class was the middle class well, yes, and the people trying to get there. The middle class, <laughs> yeah, you're not poor or working class. You're aspiring to join the middle it's class. Like, it's like all Americans who are, you know, temporarily bankrupted millionaires, right? Yeah, which is which is patronizing. But in the context of our political and media world we live in, people understand that as mm -hmm. uh, doing more for for ordinary Canadian families and, and bringing, you, you would think that that means bringing up the standard of living uh, for the majority <laughs> of Canadians. So this is their constant mantra, but they refuse to, to take action on a simple thing like a federal minimum wage. Um, so <clears throat> they refuse to, um, they refuse to consider a national childcare program. So these very basic uh, steps, progressive steps that could be taken to include prosperity for what's called the middle class, what is actually poor working class and, and middle class people across the country. Um, they constantly talk about it, but they refuse to take even these very basic um, social democratic steps. And so I think that double discourse of, on the one hand, they they tell corporate Canada, look, we're gonna, we're gonna increase your profits. Um, they, they're very close to the banks, obviously, to, to the mining industry, to all of these um, corporate interests. Um, they, their message is that they're the more rational uh, party to, to govern the Canadian economy than the Conservatives. And then they have this other discourse to the majority of Canadians, and yet they refuse uh, to take really basic measures. I think that's a, a clear contradiction. He can't hold up forever. And there was the incident at the Canadian Labour Congress Summit in Ottawa, where youth uh, on the day where it was actually the young workers summit pardon me and and you had a when trudeau came to speak uh, was really challenged quite 
effectively or, or aggressively in various ways uh, by people asking hard questions or turning their back to him. And I think just for all the, the, the charm and the selfies, his thoroughly unconvincing answers when faced with young workers and activists uh, really was, uh, was uh, a showing of those cracks in, in the government. Yeah, I, I guess a, a place where the, where the personal image kind of started to fail and the substance wasn't really there. It just, yeah, kind of just in moments like that, kind of, I, I think I described it. Those are those moments where he kind of just melts into a puddle. Um, I don't know. He, I mean, he continues. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if the words coming out of his mouth were Harper's in a moment like that, the thing would have would have gone viral. So it, it still goes, it only, it goes a certain distance and with a certain group of people. So I think, you know, we shouldn't overestimate that as a turning point, but I think for people on the generally the left and center left politically, let's say, a, a moment like that definitely highlights those, those contradictions and makes it clear this is a government of corporate Canada uh, for all of its nice talk. It's not gonna, it, it appears to be unwilling to take even basic steps. Uh, to alleviate some of the the suffering of those of us uh, aspiring to join or, <laughs> or rejoin in whatever case it is uh, that shrinking middle class. That's the other thing they never they never really um, make it clear. They talk always about the shrinking middle class, but if the middle class is shrinking, then the poor and working class is is growing. Right. Um, or the uh, people aren't just getting rich and you know yeah. aspiring. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing, right? We have these uh, politicians of all stripes who can only talk about the shrinking middle class. But yeah, they never talk about the, obviously, you have a ruling class elite growing, the, the ruling class is growing, or the uh, the impoverished classes are growing, right. or both. Um, I mean, er earlier you pointed, you pointed to the fact that for now, a lot of the, a lot of the liberals lost is kind of the conservatives gain. Um, at least in the polls. I mean, it's three years out, but it's just the polls are kind of just showing who's who's capitalizing right on some of this sheen wearing off. And I think you're right to kind of be cautious and say that a lot of it is, is the conservatives. And now um, from the perspective of Ontario and the provincial politics here, I mean, I think this is a dynamic we've seen for the last number of years where the same thing has happened here. The conservatives, you know, we have a very, very unpopular liberal um, premier by now, but it's really the conservatives who have capitalized, and even mm -hmm. things where they could be issues for the left or center left, like the privatization of Hydro One, have become kind of government incompetence mismanagement issues for the conservatives. What you know? What are the dangers there? Do you see the conservatives capitalizing on this, and and what are some of the dynamics within that party too? Um, where I know I you know I've seen you on Twitter say that they're you know looking for the best. Trump copy uh, right now with their leadership race. What's like? What's you know? Wh what are some of the dangers for the for the right in Canada to both capitalize on uh, the liberals' growing unpopularity or slowly developing unpopularity and just generate some energy on their own from this uh, leadership race? Oh well, this is this is exactly why this is a terrifying moment in Canadian politics. Where it seems like, like and Canada is being projected as the calm in the storm 
right? And the Economist sort of holds up Justin Trudeau as the last great hope of, of liberal globalization um, and things like this. But but yes, absolutely. I mean, the right wing every, everywhere is energized now, in large part because of Trump uh, coming to power. Now we have to say he is going to come to power. There, He's not going to be stopped before January 20th. Uh, liberal illusions uh, in electoral college and, and other things aside. Um, so the right is energized. And what's really scary to me is the the, the mainstream media naturally is going to favor <clears throat> coverage of the conservatives. Um, they are the official opposition. Canada's always been the these two parties trading power. Uh, obviously, the issues the conservatives bring up are more in line with the editorial positions of the corporate media. So there's already this natural tendency to focus on the conservative uh, leadership race. Um, my big concern is that the NDP, already hovering around 10, 12% of the polls, is going to keep itself irrelevant or keep itself out of this conversation by not having a proper leadership race with truly left-wing candidates. So the Conservatives, I know the Conservative leadership vote is coming up a little earlier in 2017 than the NDP, but you can already see this dynamic uh, and its harmful effects playing out in the media. The Conservatives have 17 declared candidates, plus the, the wild card of the, you know, the in some ways, Trump wannabe reality TV star Kevin O'Leary with his uh, <clears throat> right-wing economic fundamentalism, at least, although he's not a social conservative and uh, <clears throat> in the same way as some of the others. Um, so you have this media frenzy sort of already uh, latching on to these candidates. Uh, and those candidates are already campaigning on specific, specific issues. And even if these are issues where it, it seems that they won't resonate with the majority of Canadians, they're taking strong right-wing stands and they're starting to energize their base around it. So Kelly Leach is playing the, the Trump anti-immigrant card in a very crude, um, seemingly unsophisticated way. But if you look, it's getting pick up on social media. It's becoming the thing that's being discussed in the media. So my concern is you have 17 conservative candidates I think the number was 17 when the Republicans had their race too, or you know the Republicans when they had their primary. Right, they that had a crazy stage of there was like, but it was a similar dynamic, right? Yeah. Sort of every everyone on the left and, and and liberal commentators made fun of the whole show. It was ridiculous. All, all these 17 had various wacky positions, but what they were doing in having that race that they had a democratic leadership contest. Uh, the Republicans, that is, had a democratic race. They let everybody come in. Everybody with their crazy issues. Liberals made fun of them, but they energized the base, they signed up new members, uh, they grew the party, and you know people ended up coalescing around a dangerous right-wing populist uh, who ended up winning. Meanwhile, the Democrats, and I'm always surprised that there hasn't been more uh, leaks about this, actually, they sort of pushed everyone aside so that Hillary Clinton could be the anointed candidate. Um, that is, Bernie Sanders eventually challenged her. Uh, but what I find interesting is that we haven't heard more about all the potential candidates that were told, no, 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 this is Clinton, Hillary Clinton's turn. Stay out of the race. Don't, don't make this a, a bigger contest. Don't challenge her. That would be disrespectful and et cetera, et cetera. All the different ways people are pressured behind the scenes. So my big fear is that the NDP will have a similar dynamic where they'll only have a race between a handful of candidates and, and many sort of aspiring contestants will be will be pushed out through backroom pressure. A kind of what managed I, race. 
A managed race, yeah, and weeding out. And this happens across the country in local ridings, where local nominations are just given to the, the preferred insider, and people who would challenge them are, are pressured uh, not to enter and not, not to have real nomination races. Um, and the reason this is, would be such a bad thing in 2017 in the leadership race is if there's only three or four uh, candidates and if there's only one leftist or they're all sort of centrist, center-left um, traditional uh, NDP candidates, the Conservatives are absolutely going to own the media throughout 2017 and they're going to set the terms of debate around uh, issues of xenophobia, critiquing the Liberals economically from the right. Um, so all of that is is a big fear. And we haven't yet seen uh, real strong left challengers emerge to say they want to run for the NDP leadership race or just to, to even sort of start that discussion. We've had a few people saying they're considering running uh, Charlie Angus, Peter Julian. These are, you know, good, good parliamentarians, really good on, on certain issues. But there's no sign that that anyone is going to run a, I mean, the the obvious analogy, and it's kind of cliche, but there's no sign that anyone is going to run a Bernie Sanders-like campaign in Canada. And uh, that's not a simple thing, of course, to transplant north. But uh, yeah, basically, we have to see some some left-wing populism and some, some strong left-wing campaigns. Otherwise, <clears throat> the right-wing populist virus, um, for lack of a better term, is going to spread to, to Canadian politics very quickly. That was author and journalist Derek O'Keefe. Next up, Clayton Thomas-Muller. Clayton is the Stop It at the Source campaigner with uh, Global Climate Justice Organization 350.org. He's also a member of the Mate Colomb Cree Nation and is based in Winnipeg. Our conversation focused on the Trudeau government's approach to climate and its relationship with First Nations. Well, let, let, let's start with the same sort of uh, question that I started with, uh, with, with the other folks I've been interviewing. Um, it's, you know, it's been a year of the Trudeau government now. Um, is is the shine finally starting to come off a bit? You know, it it seems like there's something in there where people are starting to question, especially on some of the the climate change stuff that you're that's you know central to the work you do. Well, first and foremost, I don't think that the shine was ever there for 350.org, the organization I campaigned for. Um, it certainly wasn't there for uh, the majority of First Nations. First Nations governments that, you know, remember the legacy of Justin Trudeau's father and, of course, the previous Liberal government who, you know, put in the austerity measures that Prime Minister Harper enforced over his 11 years in power that made things so bad on our reservations that our children are now killing themselves in an epidemic of suicide because they've lost their hope. Um, you know, and that's why right out of the gate on the first day of work for Prime Minister Trudeau, we showed up at his doorstep 24 Sussex, um, you know, with a couple of hundred climate justice activists uh, and peacefully occupied the gates of 24 Sussex for uh, uh, four days uh, of his first four days of government to deliver him solar panels because 24 Sussex, of course, is experiencing, a, you know, a tens of millions of dollar upgrade. It's one of the things we have at the end, end of the year of its first operations, but yet it still has no solar panels, no no renewable energy. And so, um, you know, for us right out the gate, you know, we had a lot of important lessons that we learned from the first term of the Obama administration. You know, many of the strategists, PR strategists, you know, invoked a lot from U.S. 
uh, election uh, strategies. You know, they tried to invoke Obama, you know, in the spirit of Obama in Trudeau. Um, and we just knew right out the gate that, you know, progressive, uh, you know, centrists were the reason that Obama had, you know, for his first four years, you know, he was really considered a lame duck president. Things actually got worse on the climate and energy front. And so we knew that right out the gate, um, you know, that, uh, well, he's much more, we, what do we call him, uh, um, a Disney prince on the, on the campaign trail, you know, a year into the election, he's nothing more than a handsome harper. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been, I mean, there's been a lot of continuation of policies. And I, I mean, on the climate front, he's in a way extremely more effective than Harper, right? He's already in his first year gotten more pipelines through um, than Harper of these major projects and Harper ever was. And I just saw um, news that he's, you know, looking to cooperate with uh, President Trump on uh, on rebooting Keystone XL and getting that built. What's, I mean, and he has this, and he has this line that he repeats so often about how pipelines will pay uh, pay for the climate transition. What what are we to make of this? And where's where's this government uh, on climate policy? Look, you know, I mean, the Obama administration continues to approve permits of all you know other pipelines to the DAPL, uh, the energy transfers pipelines. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of Native Americans and their allies have been taking action against in North Dakota. Millions across the planet through social media. Um, and it's no different here in Canada. You know, just last week, uh, uh, Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr was quoted, uh, you know, saying that there's still room for the Energy East pipeline, the other controversial Trans-Canada pipeline that they have on the table. Look, the the revolving door between the energy sector and the Canadian government, as well as the U.S. government, is, is nothing new. Um, the Liberals, you know, have a long and noted history of campaigning to the left, but governing to the right. Um, you know, they put, uh, uh, like I said, you know, a Disney prince in the seat of Harper. He's become a handsome Harper and, you know, duped the Canadian public over this first year. But, you know, Canadians are sharp. They're savvy. First Nations are vigilant. Um, and, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau is not a judge in the Supreme Court. Um, he does not, you know, uh, get to determine, you know, what is law or dictate what is law to the media. He can make statements, you know, controversial ones. That's certainly something that his uh, 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 colleague in the United States, uh, President-elect Donald Trump, likes to do. But in the end, you know, we'll, we'll certainly have our day in court when it comes to the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, KXL uh, can expect I mean, the Keystone XL became the lightning rod of, of, of a U.S. environmental movement in decline and the hugely powerful and, and, and um, successful climate justice movement that emerged out of that fight, um, you know, has been winning victories left and right and growing leaps and bounds And the climate justice movement is going to be engaging uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cabinet and the companies that they're working in collusion with in very powerful, powerful, nonviolent, peaceful ways uh, on the street and in the land. You you spent a bunch of time down at uh, at Standing Rock in the camp uh, that's you know trying to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. There, um, what are some of the lessons 
from that what like do you see this kind of fight coming to bc or or the prairies or some of the other pipelines what's what are some of the similarities and differences between that fight and what we can expect in canada you know i don't i don't i don't prescribe to a lot of a lot of stories about about you know like i think it's important to understand that the fight in standing rock is the same fight that has been going on in bc it's the same fight that's been going on in northern Alberta and Cree and Métis and Denny people's territory in the tar sands. It's the same fight that's been happening in the eastern and western Canadian Arctic and in the Arctic uh, uh, coastline of Alaska against offshore development. Um, <clears throat> and we see, you know, uh, a great victory and a great sign of hope with the, you know, the permanent banning of, uh, of of oil drilling in the Arctic by both Trudeau and <clears throat> and Obama. You know, victories like that are, are because of the fact that, well, the media or, or, you know, analysts or pundits try to, you know, individualize these stories as, as one thing. Um, you know, they are part of a global super social movement known as the climate justice movement, the indigenous rights movement. Um, and, these social movements are working in a way that is intersectional, that is across agendas, that is across issues, um, and and they are led by indigenous peoples, people whose cosmo and world vision are are intersectional and holistic in view, multi generational in thought, and um, the strategies that they're using are intergenerational. You have young people and grandfathers and grandmothers working together. Um, and that's why, um, you know, for me, um, the, the time that I spent in Standing Rock, um, you know, was very much about making those connections with communities and to slay with two, um, who are, who are fighting the Kinder Morgan pipeline, um, you know, and the, and the dozens of, of, of super tankers that it's going to bring into the Borard Inlet. Um, and they're not just fighting those, those tankers because of the threat, um, that that pipeline and those tankers, you know, you know, bring to the Burrard Inlet. They're doing it in solidarity with their relatives in the tar sands and places like Beaver Lake Cree Nation, where the Tisleywitu gifted a totem pole for their resistance against the expansion of the tar sands, because they have spent time together, they feasted together, and they know that if any one of these pipelines, Keystone XL, Energy East, or Kinder Morgan, is built that it, 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 it means more cancer, more massive pollution of toxic contamination in the bio, at a bioregional level across northern Alberta by the tar sands. And they know that means more climate pollution and more climate catastrophes across the planet um, because they're thinking in a completely different way than the mainstream. And that's the kind of mindset that the climate justice movement has. And so, you know, for me, um, I feel very strongly um that 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 uh you know we need to invest significantly in a separation of oil and state we need to stop that revolving door between oil companies and policymakers. uh we need to stop the subsidizing of the most uh you know the richest most powerful corporate entities on the planet with public money and we need them we need to make them pay for their pollution um and so you know the 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 work ahead of us is intense, um, but you know, in the rise of, of 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 fascism, you know, like the type of fascism that President-elect Donald Trump represents, 
um, always is there a rise in incredible grassroots leadership and, um, and, and, and community vision, community self-determination. So it's going to be an interesting year in 2017. I wanted to ask you about the government's broader relationship to First Nations as well. I mean, you touched on this really well in the first, um, in the first answer. I want to kind of go back to that. Um, I mean, the Liberals made a lot of noise about new nation-to-nation relationships, and the rhetoric seemed to be quite different than that of Harper. But, you know, we've seen that the, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report has been out for over a year. And it, I think I saw a recent tally that just, you know, something like five of the 94 calls to action um, have been marked complete, and the rest are are languishing what's you know where where has this government been on its relationship with first nations look i've been around long enough to have been a campaigner when the the last time the liberals were in power and you know like i said first nations haven't forgot um you know we remember um you know we listen to our elders um you know and and we don't forget and this this government, you know, continues to go against a court order from its highest court, the Supreme Court, um, you know, to equalize the, the funding uh, payments between First Nations and non-First Nations children living in the care of child and family services. You know, we have more kids in the care of child and family services than, than there ever was in 100 years plus of Indian residential school, um, you know, so... While Indian residential school as an official policy has has quit, you know, the federal government of Canada continues to steal our children, put them in non-native homes and fund them at a lesser level than non-native children. And so, you know, this this federal government continues to be openly and blatantly uh, racist um, against, you know, indigenous children. You know, you don't get much more, um, what's the word, evil than that. Um, And I think that you know, that, that, that when we look across the board, um, you know, Justin Trudeau made some lofty promises, you know, they continue to reference the infrastructure, you know, historic infrastructure investments that they are doing in first nations. And yes, there, there's some great words that have been said, but they're spreading the payment of the, the extra monies that they've committed to first nations to the latter years of, of the decade. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, of, of dog wagging the tail, um, or sorry, tail wagging the dog, um, you know, going on with the liberals. And I think that, you know, for us, um, you know, we don't have anything to prove to the liberal government. Um, the liberal government has everything to prove and everything to do to earn the trust of First Nations. And, you know, this first year, um, they get a great F. They failed. Um, and I think that, you know, what they have been good at is, is, is using... Um, you know, social media, PR spin, you know, the classic announce the worst things before Christmas holidays, stress out your opponents over the holidays while you go and, you know, have a $70,000 vacation somewhere in the Bahamas at the expense of taxpayer dollars, you know. Um, The federal government continues to, the liberal government continues to use the same old conquer and divide tactics to try and divide social movements uh, to to work against each other, to, to be burnt out, to, to, you know, spin too many wheels. Um, and what we need to do is to keep our eyes on the prize, keep focused, keep organizing, organizing and mobilizing um, in, a, in a way that Canada has never seen. 
this 2017. Um, you know, and I think we need to we need to shake them up a bit. I know that those that have been organizing on Kingdom Morgan have shook uh, the image of Justin Trudeau, and and now that we've got that hook in, um, we need to take that energy and and mobilize. Um, you know, those that live around the coastal Salish ecosystem, not just native people, but all people, um, and show um, the incredible power of nonviolent civil disobedience and mass mobilization and uh, shut down the Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, to teach Justin Trudeau um, to be a little more humble and, uh, and to honor his word. That was Clayton Thomas Mueller of 350.org. My third and last guest is Luke Savage. Luke works for the Broadbent Institute at its Press Progress Media Outfit and writes frequently on U.S. and Canadian politics at Jacobin and in other venues. I started by asking him a version of the same initial question. What's changed and what stayed the same under Justin Trudeau? This was a government that really pitched itself quite high and the rhetoric certainly, I mean, I think a lot of the people that voted for the government thought that they were going to get a transformational government. I think if you, if you really were closely observing what they were actually saying. They never actually promised to be transformational. They found a kind of perfect Archimedean point between um, rhetoric and concrete uh, policy promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's right there in the in their slogan, Canada is back, right? When they, when they were sworn in, they said that, I mean, that contained within that phrase, I think, is really the the overall orientation of the government, which is this was this was a restorative project. It wasn't about fundamentally changing anything. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we've really we've really seen that over the past year. I mean, in terms of, um, I mean, they've been very successful at least kind of up till now, anyway, in packaging certainly to the international press this idea of a transformational government. I mean, some of the stuff in the international press has been um, kind of. I mean, hyperbole on steroids. Uh, it's been really hard to believe. There was a, an article in The Independent a few months back that was uh, basically saying, I mean, it was just wrong. It was saying that Trudeau was giving every Canadian a basic income. That was the headline. Right. And that was based on the, you know, this pilot project that they're doing, um, you know, and the fact that the social development minister had mused about it. And the article said, you know, that Justin Trudeau is kind of pioneered one of the most liberal premierships of modern times and this kind of thing. So, I mean, they they did successfully sell that. But if you look at what they actually promised to do, I think, um, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't particularly uh, wasn't particularly radical. I think ultimately the biggest implication of the liberal victory kind of in concrete terms is really just um, Bessine is kind of the restoration of a few things that conservatives uh, undid and also um, the, you know, avert, averting a few of the really destructive things that conservatives were planning to do uh, had they won re-election. The, the family tax cut, so-called, in particular, uh, would, would have cost about $27 billion to the federal treasury over the next six years. Right, which would the have income just been splitting a, Income splitting, yeah. yeah. So that would have been absolutely gutting. Um, but, I mean, that was just a, a crazy idea. So I don't think it's transformational to just not do that. You know, there's been a real kind of pushback against the liberals, especially from, I mean, I think as in the campaign and in general, it's hard to deal with this kind of, you know, friendlier, more handsome, more equitable version of neoliberalism. How does the left respond to this, basically? I mean, I, you know. Hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I do think one lesson of the election is that to to at least a limited extent, there is a clear appetite um, for 
a certain kind of progressive politics. I mean, the liberals, I, I think what they did and what Kathleen Wynne did in Ontario as well, is they looked at the way public opinion has shifted since the 2008-2009 crash. And they looked and they, you know, they looked at, um, they, they understood that there was this new popular discourse around inequality. They understood that um, lots of, you know, middle class and working class people who probably hadn't thought about politics or economics in quite this way before were picking up Thomas Piketty or reading, uh, you know, articles about his book, uh, were interested in, you know, uh, Paul, Paul Krugmanomics, you know, before Paul Krugman became a, a shill, uh, that kind of thing. And um, so they thought, okay, well, we can, we can use this. And so they successfully ran what was branded as an anti-austerity uh, campaign. And, you know, I think the success of that, I mean, there are other reasons, of course, why the Liberals succeeded. I think, you know, the, the, uh, what, what happened in Quebec during the election was a, a you know, was a particular uh, beast, which we don't really have time to go into. But there, there is, there is an appetite for that kind of, um, that, you know, that kind of politics. Uh, we, we know, of course, now that they're not, uh, they're not doing it. In fact, uh, Bill Morneau tomorrow is giving a fiscal update in which he's going to announce uh, the creation of a private infrastructure bank, yeah. which is going to fund a lot of this deficit spending through, um, you know, these P3 arrangements and through the sale of or the actual off, sale. Selling off airports. And, and yeah, and the sale of public assets. So I don't think that people who were voting for an anti-austerity, what they thought was an anti-austerity economic strategy, thought they meant that. And when, uh, and when, I, and when they were told they were going to get major public investment, I don't think they thought they were going to get, um, you know, private sector driven, you know, corporate uh, investment. Um, But anyway, I think that the fact that there was this rhetoric had some kind of success um, should be, you know, emboldening to forces on the left. I think that um, there's a lot of there's a lot of space to move um, around these issues. I think that the the best way forward is to go you know is to attack the government it's on its hypocrisies and its failures but also to go places where they're not willing to go i think that uh, like i'm convinced that on the inequality file i mean the broadband institute did polling on this a few years ago and people are not people are not only very concerned about inequality in canada but they're not even they're not informed about just how bad it is they think it's right. bad but it's a lot worse than it actually is uh, somehow it's kind of grown up, uh, you know, over the past few years, there's this myth that's, that's kind of um, percolated into the popular discourse that inequality is really not nearly as bad in Canada as it is elsewhere, but it's very bad. And there's all yeah. kinds of ways you can, you can look at it. Um, but if you look at even just basic metrics like CEO to worker, average CEO to worker compensation, um, or just income distribution across deciles. The the lowest ten percent decile actually has more debt than they do assets, and it's yeah. a, and it's a huge number of people. Um, so we have a really lopsided distribution of wealth in this country, and um, you know it may be that people don't associate. Um, you know, I think in the United States, what Bernie was able to do was connect the lopsided distribution of wealth to this kind of. Um, you know, to what he called the rigged economy, to the to the kind of um, you know political economic complex that was driving the whole thing. You know, it may be that there's not as much of an appetite for that uh, as there, as as there as there was in the United States, but uh, I do think there there could be quite a considerable appetite for at least a, a you know some kind of class politics, and I think yeah. that that's a place that if we're serious about tackling inequality, um, as I think anybody on the left should be. 
um, it's really it's really important that we we be willing to go there and we be willing to speak about it really in in moral terms. I mean, the liberals even at their most kind of um, you know, even when they were kind of pitching Christia Freeland in Toronto Centre as this great anti-inequality crusader, um, I mean, they're really not willing to speak about it in anything but the most technocratic terms. And I think that, we, we you know, we've seen that people do, people, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, they care about their neighbors and they care about uh, the state of, uh, you know, they care about poverty, not just inequality. Um, yeah. You know, they care about these things. And I think there's a, a lot of um, space to move there. So, uh, you know, I hope that when when the NDP leadership race finally gets going, I hope that that's a uh, I hope that's something that really comes up, and uh, and I hope that it's part of the broader uh, discussion about political strategy for the left in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's something being pushed by the fight for fifteen or fifteen oh, absolutely. Yeah. and all that. I mean, I think that's I think that's the way you basically said what I what I was going to sort of ask or point out next too that it really is you know the the liberals are. It's kind of like a party of safe yeah. technocracy. That's right. Really? And, and that, and in some ways that kind of shows, I think that feeds into, you know, this image of Canada as kind of nice, nicer, <laughs> less, you know, less, like the inequality is much more blunted, which yeah. sure, the, it is a bit lower and, than and, the And we don't have racism here, did you know? Right, we don't have racism, yeah. we don't have colonialism, yeah. right, we, you know. We happily employed uh, fur traders and, you know, um, and it's just, it's, you know, in some ways it's, it's the government that fits this kind of image. That's right. Um, but one that's not really tackling the, you know, the reality. That's right. It. I mean, so I think that that's also another thing that's important to understand about this government is, you know, we've talked about optics and appearances, but I think it actually goes beyond that because it's not just a question of people seeing something and it being illusory. It's a question of them actually feeling something that's illusory and of the government channeling uh, a latent cultural sentiment, like a sentiment that was already there. Mm. And I think that's the that's the thing which, if anything, will keep this government afloat. I think there is a a component, a significant component of Canada's kind of broader political psyche that really attach, and I think I know this because it's what I was taught in public schools, and yeah. you know, um, you know, which really believes that you know I was I really was brought up to believe that you know, and I I grew up in a you know a conser- what's a now a conservative riding, which, which is a rural riding, and I you know we our public school system wherever you are teaches you to think about Canada as a, you know it's a multicultural uh, mosaic, it's a place where um, you know French English and First Nations all kind of coexist and, um, you know, which doesn't have the kind of uh, racism that, uh, that that you have in the United States. And all, more importantly, which doesn't even have a history of racism. I mean, that's kind of just erased from the whole picture. So, um, you know, I mean, we're now just starting to talk about residential schools and, and public schools and things like that. But I think it's going to be a long time before that narrative of the country is really pierced. And I think what Trudeau has done so effectively is he's given... Um, he's given an articulation to that feeling. I mean, that's another thing that's captured in the phrase Canada is back, uh, yeah. is this idea that Canada was basically great already. Well, it, America's really already great. That's right? what I was going to yeah. say. It's very reminiscent of America's already great. Right? Yeah, it's it all, you know, the... Uh, I mean, because that phrase really suggests that circa 2006, when the Liberals were, were booted out of power the last time, uh, things were basically okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know... 
anyone who was kind of remotely on the left in 2006 or throughout the 1990s definitely did not think things were okay. Um, and there were, there were, you know, there were, there were so many problems with this country. And I think that one of the, one of the weaknesses of, um, of Canada in this respect is that in the United States, I think, you know, you do have these kind of more rampant populisms that are a res- response on the right and the left that are response to kind of perceived larger problems. And in yeah. Canada, it's much harder to break through with that kind of thing. Uh, because, uh, the, the, so many people just think we're already Sweden, right? Mm-hmm. They think we're like Sweden without native nativist like racism or whatever yeah. they, and, um, so I think part of the project going forward has also got to be to convince people that that's not actually the case, that we have all these things that people kind of liturgically share every single day on social media as saying, meanwhile, in Canada, you know, they'll have a, they'll have a, you know, what the latest horrendous example of police brutality in the United States or something. And then they'll be like, meanwhile, in Canada, it's two guys in plaid shirts on a canoe, yeah. you know, with like a loon, you know, in the water right. and the sun setting. Um, it's like we we've had you know uh, Desmond Cole's done uh, and the you know Black Lives Matter uh, activists have done a fantastic job you know uh, you know convincing people that you know we do have a lot of anti-black racism in Toronto and in other Canadian cities um, we have all kinds of racialized policing that goes on um, I mean you know we for every kind of thing that people uh, look to the United States. Um, you know, look at the United States and say, we don't have this here. I mean, we totally do. I mean, yeah. it's just, and, and, um, it's, uh, it's really quite sinister when you, when you think about it, like just how kind of erasing Canada's, you know, national narrative is. It's a very comforting one, but it's, uh, you know, um, you know, I think, I mean, though I should say, I think it also contains the seeds within it of kind of, um, uh, you know, of overcoming itself because I think that, if you can, I mean, I've found in a lot of exchanges with people over the past year, if you can just convince them, like, well, the liberals pitched this, but they're not actually doing it, or you think this about Canada, but that's yeah. not actually the reality, they can be like, oh, well, you know, uh, I didn't know this kind of racism existed, or I didn't know that we had this kind of inequality, maybe we should do something about it. Um, so yeah. I think that's, uh, that's perhaps, a, a, there's a margin of hope there. That was Luke Savage, and that's all for this week. All the best to you and yours. Talk to you in the new year.